I'm going to talk about the Hermitage uh, in the context of other presidential sites and why they are important. And, in fact, it's going to be my first visit to the Hermitage, so I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, very good. good. Uh, I I have been to Graceland, but not to the Hermitage, so obviously (laughs) I'm not doing this right. Well, the people know Elvis more than they do Andrew Jackson. Yeah, right. Well, both historic sites and each important in its own way. Now, regarding that, it's, it's, it's very interesting because they have completely taken the image of Andrew Jackson to a level that's really raw and, mm-hmm. and, and really real, which in the past there used to be this uh, lionizing of, right. of President Jackson and the uh, 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 the new exhibit, which I've gone to a few times, um, really shows warts and all. And also, you know, the, the, the so you have a president who has been compared to in many ways to Donald Trump. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just a fascinating place to do this and a fascinating time to be able to be there. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and that, as you know, that's that's the direction which great historic sites are going. And uh, to compare it with Graceland, which has many virtues, it is still largely a very sanitized view of Elvis's life. And, you know, I have thought so many times that if Graceland gave a more three-dimensional view of what his life was really like, you know, it could really inspire a lot of people to realize that this was not just all roses and he was dealing with demons and, you know, could inspire especially younger people who were dealing with the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, with regard to a presidential site like uh, that, one of the things that, that, you know, a lot of people in this community celebrate it, there are occasional uh, protests by Native American groups here. Uh, and uh, and also by groups that have been asked for more recognition of, uh, of the slaves that the Jacksons held, and so it's really interesting to see that uh, uh, that that aspect of. Um, and if you, I don't know if you've been to Nashville before, but um, you know, oh, there's sure. just oh, you're, okay. So you, you're aware of like almost every road you can uh, you're going to encounter Old Hickory at some point. Oh sure, uh, no, you you can't escape. <laughs> and but so, so that's that, sort of you know there are two schools of thought about this. One is that. You you take every name that has a legacy, that has any complication, you just remove it. Uh, and the other is that, you know, you keep names on and you, you know, you, you still, you, you keep names on streets, for instance. And, you know, for instance, where I live in Washington, D.C., you know, there's a Jefferson Davis Highway and a lot of Confederate generals and so forth and statues in Alexandria, Virginia. And the other point of view is that, you know, the fact that something is named after someone doesn't mean that you honor that person unambiguously. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a more interesting historical exercise. And plus, you know, the idea that most of the founders of this country was that we would always be arguing about these things. Mm-hmm. Because if you take that to its extreme, you'd have to take George Washington's name off of the national capital. Right. That's an interesting way to do it. I was thinking about... Uh... Washington, there's been so much emphasis on, on Hamilton because of the musical, and uh, that sure. has caused discussions here in, in Nashville about what about Andrew Jackson's role on the $20 bill and how interesting that a, a man who opposed the central bank you know, would be on, on the currency of this country. It's, it's, it's always been well, it's an irony, but, but it's a legitimate discussion, and we should always be arguing about these historical figures. I would worry about a country in which we had stopped doing that. Yeah, I went and started looking at the archives of, of my own paper from the 1830s and 40s, and uh-huh. this paper started as an anti-Jackson paper uh-huh. and, in fact, refused to uh, endorse Martin Van Buren in 1836 and called 
James Polk in 1844, mediocre. Uh, it was uh, at the time it was a Whig paper, and uh, so it was really focused on trying to do anything it could to to, to be anti-Jacksonian, which I which sure. I found fascinating. Uh huh. Yeah, very much so. In, in terms of the media representations of uh, presidents here, you've obviously written every, everyone from JFK to FDR to mm-hmm. Modern World to Lincoln. Um, tell me a little bit about it in terms of just the way that you that they dealt with the media and they dealt with their own image. Uh, the way that presidential candidates did, or presidents? Uh, presidents, huh? Uh, you mean from the beginning, or? Well, from, from maybe some of the, the the highlights, some of the people that you think best exemplify that. Well, I think it's. You know, it's a different period when you basically were in the period of radio and especially television, because before then, the way that a president would get to large audiences was basically by befriending newspaper publishers and reporters. Uh, And so, you know, there was enough of a gatekeeper in those days that, you know, we as Americans were depending on those people being incorruptible and giving us a fairly accurate portrayal. You know, at the same time, you know, all the presidents that we've been talking about and more, you know, Lincoln had strong friends among the press because he knew that that was the way that he could get his message across. Uh, Kennedy once said, you know, jokingly to a reporter friend, uh, I'm so lucky, I'm paraphrasing, I'm so lucky to be living in the tele- in the age of television where we don't have to go through you guys. And to some extent, that's true because you know you're you're seeing it much more directly, and that was even in the day when there was no C-SPAN and there was not cable television. So that if someone saw Kennedy, you'd rarely see a whole speech. You'd see sort of a clip on a 15-minute news program. So even then, you know, you had to go through a gatekeeper. Have you? Um witnessed or at least or studied uh, cases like Donald Trump where he has uh, accused the media of being rigged and corrupt, accused the and accused the system of being corrupt, because it seems like that list of who is corrupt and what is rigged seems to get larger and larger every week. I think that's right. And it's a, it's a charge that's oftentimes made, uh, maybe more often than not, by people who are not winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sure, you can you can find that through history. And, and and the charge this is this is completely different from Trump, but you know you can find that charge in the 1924 excuse me the 1824 election, certainly 1876, uh, certainly 2000. So it has come up from time to time, but you know there were and 1960 of course, but never sort of a wholesale argument. The whole system is corrupt, or that a president can get elected because of a corrupt media. Mm-hmm. I think in these days when media, you know, traditional media has a different role from what it did 30 years from, uh, ago, I think some people in the what what might be considered to be the establishment media nowadays, you know, would be glad to hear that they have that much power. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious. I, I'm remembering one video of you that I saw. You related a, a story by LBJ, about the, the Economist, and. Uh, urine on his leg and some people think oh, it's right, uh, right. <laughs> and you think in terms of just the things that people the misconceptions that people have about what is interesting about the president and, and what have you found that maybe people are not as well, to? well you mean in terms of uh, mis- well I mean Johnson for instance would be a very good example of someone with total misconceptions because mm-hmm. if Johnson came back to life and knew that those tapes of his had been 
you know, published in a book by me and others and had been played on television and so forth, he'd be completely horrified because mm-hmm. he felt that he wanted to basically look and sound like Grover Cleveland or some more traditional president. He would not realize that a lot of the stuff that he would find the most horrifying on those tapes, you know, the language and some of the stories, are those that actually to a later generation makes him a lot more interesting and more sort of real and more current. Oftentimes, presidents and presidential candidates are not the best judge of this. Mm-hmm. That your assessment of, of this race as it stands today, and I've seen the polls and certainly, are you, do you think this will be a landslide? Uh, I basically deal with dead people. I am, uh, what I, my expertise does not quite extend to prediction. Uh, you can argue this one round or flat. Well, well very good. Well, I, I figured I'd ask, try to ask the question. But, no, no, but man, I, thanks for asking, but <laughs> I believe in life if, if I don't know something to say so. Well, if I can go back into a, a president of, of tremendous interest, uh, a dead president of tremendous interest to, uh, to Tennesseans, it was uh, Andrew Johnson, interesting uh-huh, enough, from East course. Tennessee. Um, who, when uh, there are a lot of newcomers here in Tennessee, especially in Nashville, more than half of the people here do not did not come from Nashville, uh-huh. and so uh, seeing Jackson or Taylor from uh, uh, Eastern Tennessee, where and people are often amazed that there was a portion of Tennessee that was part of the Union, that stayed part of the mm-hmm. Union mm-hmm. Uh, even during the Civil War, and he tends to to get the rap as being the guy who was the first guy, the first president who was impeached, and that's really all you hear, right. and. Um, from a standpoint of, of significance, and, and maybe the, the answer is that there, there was none, but for you, I mean, what, how, how would you interpret his role? His in role, terms of, hmm. it would be uh, a rare monumental lapse in Abraham Lincoln's judgment and leadership. Mm-hmm. He put Johnson on the ticket in 1864 for very political reasons, you know, for you know just exactly what you've said. Wanted to balance balance the ticket with someone who was not a Republican, who was not you know traditional, you know abolitionist before 1860, and and obviously regional balance, and also he wanted to bring attract the border states. So all those things were political reasons. What Lincoln did not consider was, if something happened to Lincoln, and this was wartime, the presidency would be in the hands of someone who uh, had very different views from Lincoln about Reconstruction. With regard to other things to talk about on Friday, you know, you've talked about the presidential side. Are there any previews you'd like to give or anything? Because I'm writing a column um, that focuses on on this event. It focuses on on your contributions to it uh, for this Friday. Well, I think maybe, you know, what I'll talk about with a little nuance, I hope, is how important it is and also how difficult it is to interpret a historic site. For instance, I was a trustee of Monticello for about 10 years, and I went on that board just after Monticello, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which runs it, uh, decided to accept the DNA findings about Sally Hemings. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, most people take that just, you know, that that's, that's just accepted wisdom, and they don't see that as any know, unusual decision for the foundation to have made. But this is 20 years ago, and, you know, that was an enormous controversy, and there were people on that board who privately were horrified by the idea of what the findings suggested, yet they went along and they said, you know, if this is the scientific evidence, we will stand behind it. And, you know, that is sort of the way this is supposed to operate. It doesn't always happen that way. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, another example is not a historic site, but have you been following what's going on at the Nixon Library? Uh, I, I don't think that I haven't. I mean, it would be actually worth writing about sometime, not just Nixon, but just this whole subject where the Nixon Library, I'm sure you know, was built with private funds. Do you know this whole story? Mm-hmm. That, that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, Nixon built it, built it with private funds, opened it, you know, under the aegis of his friends and family, not the National Archives, because at that point he was suing the archives over his tapes and papers. So that when it was a private library, it was very, you know, not only pro-Nixon, but minimized Watergate to the point of, you know, being extremely contrived in the way that they dealt with certain Watergate subjects. And the National Archives took it over 2007, and since then, I'm just thinking of this because there's a new installation, which I have not seen, which just opened, I think, within the last week or so. But they made the leap from a library that was basically Nixon's view of his presidency to a view that's much more down the middle, as should be you know, in an institution that's run by hmm. the National Archives. And it brings up all these fascinating questions, you know, how do you deal with these issues? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, one thing that shows how important and relevant Andrew Jackson is is that you and I are talking about some of these things in terms of Andrew Jackson so long afterwards. It's fascinating that when you often hear people saying that that a certain president, whether it's Jackson or Nixon, were men of their time, and how do we relate that to a modern audience? Obviously, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda did it through, is doing it through Hamilton in a, sure. in a very unique way. And and I think that uh, that I've talked to people from the Hermitage, you know, they're doing their best to tell this message beyond just what used to be the 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 ladies of the Hermitage organization. And uh-huh. uh, and, I, and I think I think they're succeeding. Like, at least in the two years that I've been here, I've seen their outreach has grown tremendously. And uh, well, from what, everything I know, and Mount Vernon is another example of that. You know, which is still the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, which owns it and runs it, and for many decades there was a certain representation of Washington that they did not want to stray from. Have you seen the relatively new museum there? I've not. Well, there's a museum that's been opened, I would say, within the last 10 years mm-hmm. uh, or so, you know, with a portrait of, you know, one of the enslaved people who worked on Mount Vernon and some of the questions that just ne- never would have been, uh, been dealt with before. And so that's why a site like the Hermitage, it's, you know, one of the most fascinating historical problems you can have. Mm-hmm. And by problem, I don't mean a problem, you know, a difficulty. I mean, a, you know, sort of, you know, a, a, a complex of questions. You know, there was, I was talking to a reader today who brought up an issue in it that um, may or may not be relevant to this, but I think there is some which with regard to the criticism and now you could relate it to the social media uh, criticism that presidential candidates and their families are subjected to. And mm-hmm. uh, she had brought up the, the issue of, uh, of Mrs. Rachel Jackson, right? And and, uh, and how that uh, the accounts for that really caused her to get sick and, and eventually pass away, right? Um, and and I can only imagine how it is today, especially in an era of the Twitter and uh, instant instant uh, punditry. Right. That uh, you're able to, what kind of uh, emotional shell you're supposed to have to be an effective politician and an effective politician's family member. Right. And the number of people who were screened out of running for president because they do not want to subject their families to that or themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. That does go right back to Jackson's experience. Mm-hmm. 
Has there been, in your uh, estimation, a presidential candidate who has been able to define his opponents so effectively as Donald Trump? And what I mean by that is using terms like lying Ted and low energy Deb, little Marco. It's almost seemed that he's been very effective at being able, in, in the minds of his supporters at least, mm-hmm. of defining who his enemies are in their face well, and using it for contentious. I th- it's hard to find someone where the presidential candidate did that himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of the difference, because these things have come out of Trump's mouth, and I think that's one reason why, you know, in the, I assume you're thinking of the Republican primaries, Yes. Mm-hmm. why this had such force. You know, for instance, you know, the business about Grover Cleveland's illegitimate child, you know, mm-hmm. Mama, where's my pa? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was not uttered by Cleveland's opponent. That was, uh, you know, that that was said by people who were working for him. So I think the difference is that you have the candidate himself having said these things, because before the year 2016, I think most presidential candidates would have been advised not to say things like that because it makes you seem like a mean person. Well, it's interesting you bring up the, the president of Cleveland. I think it was around that time it was either Cleveland or Harrison that there was a congressman elected who said he was going to bring a pitchfork to Washington and, and stick it in the president's ribs. And mm-hmm. maybe it reminded me of some uh, of, of – there was a recent commentary from some politicians saying, we want to bring pitchforks to Washington. That's why we want to. Yeah, I've heard that more than once. Was it Gingrich? It might, yeah, it might have been Gingrich. I yeah. think it may have been Gingrich, and given his reading of history, I think that would that would make him a probable – uh, easy enough to find out. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, if Gingrich didn't say it, he probably should have. You know, <laughs> it's a little bit like the, the phrase clearing the swamp. Oh, yes. yes. Well, um, in, in this last minute, I know that I was. Uh, don't want to take up too much of your time. Oh, that's is there fine. Anything? No, I'm enjoying it very much. Oh, good, good. Yeah, me too. Uh, is there anything that, that I haven't asked you or anything that you wanted to discuss specifically that, uh, or you wanted to emphasize that, uh, that I should mention to readers? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, I think mainly uh, the fact that you know history is a way of understanding presidents that, that's different from watching them in real time, and maybe it's something that we should all remember that you know as much as you know we see these candidates on TV and you know read about them on social media and the rest, both Trump and Clinton will look very different in history 40 years from now. Now, that doesn't help us very much as voters, but, you know, you have to always remember that things that seem hugely important in this campaign and in a president 40 years from now oftentimes will look trivial, and the reverse is is oftentimes true as well.